Welcome to the Left Wing Just podcast. I'm Ross. I'm Brandon. And I'm Kathleen. Thank you for joining us for what will be the last episode of season two. Today we'll be starting by reflecting on the rise and fall of the European Super League, as well as looking at some Tory sleaze. We'll also be reflecting on the best bits of this season. Before we do that, I heard you two have been off to the pub. Tell us about that. I was lovely. It was lovely to sit out in the, uh, the freezing cold. No, it was genuinely quite a nice experience choice of drink i had a, a big pint of peroni which was needed i think at lager just tastes better at the pub to be honest and it was nice to get that outside pub atmosphere i suppose i too went to the pub along with maybe i don't know 60 million other people it's just really nice to be around people and i actually find that when i'm in the pub you can kind of hear chatter in other tables and that's quite different because i haven't been around people um, obviously due to lockdown for the past year. That was quite a s- strange experience here, something like the hustle and bustle of a of like a street and where we were. And I tried to book a restaurant out, but I got there a bit too late and I don't know if I can I don't know if I can get a booking in London in the month of April to be honest. That's not good, is it? <laughs> agree with what you're saying about, you know, having people around you and other people's conversations. I've really missed that because I'm quite a nosy person. And sometimes, you know, just whilst I'm eating, I like to zone out and just listen to somebody else's conversations. And that's that's been something that I've I've missed. Ross hasn't been to the park. No, um tell us why, Ross. I'm I'm looking f- <laughs> we're back on Monday, but I'm really looking forward to it. We're we're evenly allowed to stay out till eight o'clock on Monday. That's when they have to close eight o'clock. I'm buzzing. Um maybe I'll be I'll... kind to you. Yeah. <laughs> you have to be in your house at eight PM or the pubs close at eight. No, no, the, the pubs, so they're allowed to sell alcohol to eight o'clock and then the, I think the indoor closes at eight o'clock. It's very confusing, um, but we'll figure it out, I'm sure. So you, but then I don't understand why that's happened because people just start drinking earlier. If you know that they're going to stop serving alcohol at eight, people will just get there at four as opposed to getting there at six and drinking till 10 or 11. I don't, well, I don't know if like, like, works. like most decisions the Scottish government makes, I don't quite understand it, but, you know. Well, what I've seen on my story quite a lot is where pubs have closed somewhat earlier than, you know, what they're allowed to. People have just been buying 10, 11 drinks um, and just sitting there outside drinking them until, you know, whatever time in the morning because they're allowed to still sit outside. I can't imagine that's going to go down particularly well. Yeah, that that would be an option in Scotland should it have been legal (laughs) to drink outside. But again, that's something else that we can do. (laughs) Do we want to move on? Kathleen, I heard you've got some interesting football conversation for us. Well, I do. I mean, it's. I think it's time to talk about what's, what's on everyone's minds in the football community, and that is the rise and fall of the European Super League this week. Uh, I think what we saw was a community who feel very strongly about something very quickly becoming very political. I think there are a, a lot of people out there in the UK and actually in the in the world because you know Premier League football is watched by people all over the world who suddenly got very political 
and suddenly got really, really interested in the ongoings of a couple of billionaires. It, it was, you know, quite a massive reaction. Um, I don't think I've actually ever seen such an outrage about something before. Maybe Dominic Cummins, but since then, you know, it is one of the biggest coming together of a sort of collective group of people I've, I've seen. Thankfully, we killed it. But I think it's really interesting. A lot of people have been chatting about a sort of British football league as another option coming out of it which is was interesting but um, I think what would happen there is Celtic and Rangers would sort of jump into that and the rest of Scottish football would be left to suffer and that's something I don't want to happen it would be the same sort of thing as what the big six were trying to do oh that's where I kind of that's what I find challenging the six clubs that were part of that were originally part of the ESL are not the top six in the Premier League at the minute and they're not the top six in terms of winning cups and winning titles. An example there is Arsenal, who, correct me if I'm wrong listeners, haven't actually won anything in 2004 and who find themselves in the bottom half of the Premier League this year due to consistently bad performances. I was a bit confused when it began. How did they determine who were the big six? Like, was it done on revenue or was it done on support or was it done on views or was it done on cup wins? Like, I was a little bit... They were definitely chasing the money and chasing the branding side of it more than actually worrying about which teams were the were the best at the moment and that's kind of a big part of the problem with it the fact that you couldn't get relegated from the super league you know how is that creating competition how is that creating um mobility between the teams it was it was really interesting seeing football twitter turn into comrades that was a that was an experience and a half and i, I just i just wish that kind of energy could be translated into other aspects of life because you know it's not just football where there's there's billionaires getting involved and uh, messing around with uh, things that don't need to be messed around with that's in all aspects of the uk and <laughs> being um a brit at the moment what was interesting was when captain liverpool football team who's who's supposed to be in the european super league organized uh, an off-record meeting with the other captains of other teams and i i just thought i was like that's actually in its purest form that's collective action in a what is a global workplace with people from all over the world involved but actually when you think about the players from all the different types of teams, that's actually in its purest form. That's what that was. It was a meeting of minds where people worked together to basically push for one or two objectives and to write back against what was um, what was something that they completely disagreed with, which I thought was I thought was fascinating. Suddenly, it's interesting that we have these people on the left have these like huge grand ideas of what collective action and what that all means. But the minute it all goes a bit challenging, people become very their politics turn very left very quickly. I think that's the beauty of football, though. It's one of the few elite sports where you know the athletes tend to come from working class backgrounds. Would we have seen that sort of reaction had it been cricket or rugby? Probably not. I think the fan bases are still as strong, though. They're yeah, probably possibly. not as big, but I think the rugby fan base is just as strong as the football, especially in the UK, is just as strong as the football fan base, even though obviously football is a wider, the yeah. wider game that's played more. But I think even the cricket one, even the cricket fan base is probably a lot smaller and a lot more centralised around three or four other countries. But I think people who care about it are just as are just as strong, just feel just as strongly about those games. Well, talking to a lot of my old relatives, what the European Super League kind of represented was football moving further away from the fans and the fans slowly losing control over the teams that they helped to found. So like... For example, in 1992, when the Premier League was formed, a lot of fans saw that as a way of them losing control over the game that they they loved and it was going to private hands. And I just found it so interesting watching some of Sky Sports coverage of the European Super League and how kind of hypocritical they were about teams chasing the money. Well, wasn't that kind of what the Premier League was 
based off of originally. I don't, <laughs> I don't know. Correct me if I'm wrong, but that is uh, how I see it. You can get relegated in the Premier League. Well, that's the difference, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, and I think that yeah. that's what makes it exciting because mm-hmm. if you had, like, if you imagine for a second the European Super League went ahead, you'd have the 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 big the big six playing each other. But then, what would happen if you if you if you lost all those games? Okay, nothing would happen. Okay, well then, why would the players go to training? Because it doesn't matter if you lose. Okay, so what's the point in turning up to play? Why don't you just want a B team? Because the proper because the players don't want to do it. So it's like, why would you? In that way, it's a bit about politics. Like, if there's a winner in politics, there also has to be a loser. Elite sport is unfortunate. Is just the same, and that's the nature of the beast. And you just have to be. I think in the Premier League, the example is Norwich City, who are going up next season. It gives them a chance to play against the better team, and that's what I like about it. And if you are the best team, you will go to the top and win. And that's not necessarily the team with the highest revenue. It's it's all been spun in a way to try and seem as oh this was for the fans, and it's completely backfired off them. The reality is, it's a few sleazy billionaires trying to fix the game to suit themselves which is something that seems to be happening quite a lot in this country recently. Brandon? So um, one of the, the stories which has recently emerged is um, Cameron's role uh, in a company called Green Cell and how they're trying to how they try to fix COVID loans to support that company when, you know, the government was handing out those loans and kind of the role of ex-politicians and current politicians trying to spin the game so that they still benefit off the system that they were a part of and there's there's all sorts of stories that have happened recently about Tory sleaze it's it's a lot of politicians taking advantage of their position to further their their own careers their own lives and the people around them's careers and lives and it just reflects really badly not just on the conservative party but in on politics in general and the kind of state that this country's politics has got into it's interesting um i mean obviously the stuff with, with david cameron's pretty damning stuff you know between boris johnson um and james dyson i don't think the original texts are as damning as they seem i think there was a need for urgency james dyson asking for a tax break so that we could save people's lives is, but i don't think boris johnson acted in a way that was yeah wasn't by the book but Given the situation, I can understand it, but it seems to have opened a can of worms and it now needs to be investigated because it seems that it does go a lot deeper than what we've already witnessed. Um, I think there are several points to make here. And one is, are in politics and you are a young politician and you reach a high office and then you leave, which David Cameron did. He got into politics very young, straight out of university. Um, he didn't really work. He, did, he didn't really have a job for more than nine months at any at a company before he went into full-time politics. He worked in a PR firm for six months before he moved on to um, Tory HQ. So when you leave a job like that and you walk out of kind of professional politics, it's very difficult. I think it must have been quite challenging mentally for him to go and do something else because the power that a prime minister has in the UK, you know, there's one person in the UK that has that level of power. And when you leave, you really can't, it's very difficult and very few politicians step out at a young age and then step back in at another age um, later on down the line. And then what are you supposed to do? Because You've had a job that's like all the time, 3am phone calls, 6am phone calls, 24 hour days, 48 hour days, huge stakes on the table. He had two referendums and two elections in his time. Uh, just it was very busy a busy parliament a very busy economic agenda and then what you're supposed to go and sit in the countryside for six months and reflect on your time and he has he himself has said in his book especially that there's a lot of things that he wanted to do that he just never got around to doing and I think that's where the problem lies is when you have young politicians who leave office 
especially in the UK, because I think I think in the US you are given uh, there's a lot more credibility and a lot more respect. But in the in the UK, you step in, you step into number 10 as a citizen and then you step out as a citizen as well. And I'd love to know what can be done for those type of people, because otherwise they just get themselves involved in really stupid things, which is exactly what he's done. He knows that it was very stupid. David Cameron knows he made some serious mistake. He actually made speeches about how bad lobbying is earlier on in his term. So he which he must have written, spoke them in public event, and then he's gone back on his own word 10 years later. It's sad, but I think there has to be something that has to happen, some kind of programme or something that they can go and do, something that's kind of beneficial for a charity or something like that to take on, because you can't just allow them to, to live, otherwise they'll just come back into politics and they won't do the right thing. I, I don't really agree with you there. I mean, I think there is a lot that David Cameron could have went on to do you know, sort of charity work and whatever. For instance, Gordon Brown set up, you know, the office of Gordon and Sarah Brown does some amazing work um, in the developing world as well as, you know, here in the UK. I, I think it's about how David Cameron has chosen to use his time post-premiership. I, I think you're maybe being a little bit too sympathetic to David Cameron there. <laughs> Surely I, not. <laughs> I, just, I just mean like there should be there should be an expectation that is set for politicians that if you leave, uh, if you get in early and you leave early, you are then expected to only do charity work or you are expected to go and sit on a board of a national charity or an international charity or you are expected to pick um, a health issue or, you know, a non-political issue, whatever Gordon Brown has done, something like that. And then that is what you're supposed to go away and do. You are not supposed to go out and lobby and you're not supposed to go and connect with multinational companies and find other ways to get you back in to number 10 like that's not I think there has to be an understanding amongst like a behavior set that when you leave office there are expectations and you know he's not short of he's not the guy's not on the breadline he's not short of a couple of quid he's well set up for life why couldn't he just have stepped away and done that well I, I think it's quite interesting talking about David Cameron how he's, he's left office but part of the problem is a lot of the people who are taking part in this kind of <laughs> backroom handshaking dodgy dealings they're actually still in office so, for example, you've got Matt Hancock tipping people off as to how they can attain um, COVID contracts. So, for example, one story which really sticks out to me, which was reported in The Guardian, was that <laughs> he got in touch with his former neighbour who actually ran a pub via WhatsApp to tell him how he could attain contracts. And he actually has attained that contract to produce tens of millions of vials that are actually used in the, the COVID testing. And... I just don't understand how elected officials can get away with that and how they're not held to account for... It wasn't a blunder because it was it was purposefully done. How can they get away with doing things like that? Also, a minor question. Why was Boris Johnson texting James Dyson? Why was he not texting people who make ventilators? If you need more ventilators... <laughs> surely you should... No, but I'm just curious because... Dyson are famous for their vacuums and ventilators and vacuums are not even similar. So why would you ask? It's like asking a bread maker to make you some milk. It's like, okay, I get they're similar, but they're not the same. So why would you not just ask? Didn't he couldn't locate a ventilator maker or somebody who made something similar to that? I just don't understand why. It's jobs for the boys. That's what it is. Maybe. And then I think also, you know, I think it's I think it's also worth saying that there was a set during the Blair era and before what to do in a pandemic. Like so back in the early 2000s, the UK was declared as one of the top nations that was ready for a pandemic because they had the book on the shelf of what to do. I, I do understand that it was a situation that he didn't see coming. If we remember this time last year, there was wash your hands to the tune of happy birthday, like 
I'm sure we all we all remember that and we didn't fully understand the nature of the beast and the nature of the virus but if there are set guidelines as to how to deal to something why would you not follow them because the who names the UK and the UK government especially the best in the world to be able to deal with it if it would arise and then 15 years later 10 years later it happens and we're not ready why would you not use the the tools you already have here watch so let's talk a bit about Kia. What's he been up to? What's he not been up to? What pubs he's been thrown out of this week? What did we think about that? I thought he handled it very well, or the best that he could. I think giving the guys specs back was, you know, quite a nice wee touch. Just found it, this is such like a juvenile point to make, but I found it so funny how his bodyguard looks just like a bigger version of him. So when I first watched back the video, I thought it was him tackling the guy. And um, yeah, I was quite relieved that it was actually Kira was like dipping out of the, the pub and not. Not the uh, the guy throwing the uh, pub landlord around, but I think he did actually handle it really well, a lot better than a lot of politicians would. It has to be said, and I do think it just shows that he's 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 a decent guy, no matter whether we think that he's actually taking issues seriously that the party faces. I think he does come off as somebody who's fairly genuine. I want to hear what you have to say. Kathleen made a well, face at me, so I'm sure <laughs> she's got some opinions. Some about I, this. Just, I just have so many questions. Like, it's just another, it's another Keir Starmer story where I just have so many questions. Like, if someone's having a go at you, surely there's a process that that team has for what happens. Because it happens to politicians all the time. Like, if you go on a walkabout, if any politician goes on a walkabout, people are going to come up to you and some people are going to say nice things and some people are going to shout at you in the street. Like, that's the nature of the beast. I don't understand why there wasn't a protocol that his team knew, that his team knew, okay, if this happens, this is what we're going to do. I'm also slightly confused about why he then went into the pub when in England, we're not allowed to go into pub. As, as of time of recording, we're not allowed to go into pub. So why did he then go into the pub? And if that happens, you know, you can't, obviously you can't control other people's behaviour. You just have to have a very frank, you know, deal with it in whatever way you can. I would have just said, you know, with all due respect, completely disagree with you. You're completely wrong to say these things. The lockdown was a decision that was made well. We completely supported it at the time. And looking back at it now, we still completely support it. And I think what you're saying is fake news. I think what you're saying is wrong. Have a nice day and you walk off. And there are, I'm sure there could have been plenty of other pubs, plenty of other things to do in that area. They could have sorted it around. I just don't understand why if someone comes out from a pub and attacks you and you know, starts shouting things at you, why you then feel the need to go in. I just, I would feel like if you're in that situation, that person, he was so outraged. He, was, he wasn't going to leave him alone. What was, I don't understand what they thought was going to happen. Like, are you going to walk into the pub and the guy was suddenly going to stop shouting at you? Or was he going to take that as an advance to keep having a go at you? We've seen this with Labour leaders before. I remember, um, I think it was maybe just after the referendum, uh, Ian Gray was leader of Scottish Labour at the time, and he decided to hide in a subway. Um, <laughs> the, funnily enough, the protester followed him into the subway, um, so it didn't work, but, you know. It's interesting to see how politicians deal with the public. I was A video today came out of Anna Sarwar dancing with the public, which I thought was a very nice touch just goes to show how genuine an Asawar is. We'll need to see if, if Keir Starmer has the moves like Jagger, but... <laughs> I'd love we to, see to see Keir Starmer having a dance. But conference is only three months away, so hold on. <laughs> so hold on and we'll find out. Uh, I, I actually couldn't, but that's why I want to see it. <laughs> I bet there's some serious dad dancing moves that take place. Yeah, we'll, we'll get the Gangnam style from Keir. <laughs> <laughs> It's been a fun episode. It's been a fun season. I was just thinking, you know, I've really enjoyed recording this with you. What has been your best 
parts. Is there anything you're particularly proud of? I think I really enjoyed having Billy Bragg on just because he was somebody that I didn't think that we would ever get on the podcast. I'm not sure why I made that assumption because, you know, if people are willing to come on, they can be in any kind of position or any kind of area of society. But I, <laughs> he wasn't somebody that first came to my mind either in the first season. So in the first season, we wrote out a list of potential guests that we'd like on. And Billy Bragg wasn't on there just because it had never occurred to me that we might be able to get someone like him on. And it was actually so interesting hearing his perspective as opposed to a politician's perspective who we'll probably get most of the time on our In Conversation with episodes. And yeah, he was just, it was lovely to talk to. He, he stayed and chatted with us for quite a while after the episode ended actually, which was which was really nice. Um, and he, even though I didn't necessarily agree with everything that he was saying he came across as really genuine and points which he made were really thought out and you could tell yeah he was just a genuine great guy great guest you know i enjoyed the episodes we done with carvin jones and jack mcconnell as someone who lives with a devolved parliament it's always interesting to hear how those who once ran those institutions found it and, and what he thinks letting those institutions down what about you kathleen what's been your favorite episode there my favourite episodes have been ones with young people where we've got on young people to speak about their experiences. Um, the mental health episode I thought was really, really amazing. The team for that episode went out of our way to get really good guests who had a medical background but were also in the labour movement and could speak with a lot of experience and a lot of insight into mental health. And I thought that that was really nice, like genuine content, but also at a really good time for some people. I also really like the episode we did a couple of couple of episodes back about uh, young counsellors and what it's like to be a young counsellor because both of those two women, both very impressive women, I think both of them will have great careers gone on ahead, irrelevant to what happens on the 6th of May, but they had really positive experiences. We asked them a lot about the inside of their CLPs and how they had found their journey to become a council candidate. And both of them had really lovely things to say. Both of them had a really supportive CLPs. And to be honest, the two we were recording that, I did not expect to hear that answer. I expected to hear my CLPs horrible. People are really rude to me. I've, I've had a really tough time and I wouldn't recommend it. But neither of those two women said those two things. Uh, I also loved hearing from our two Irish guests on, Saint, on the St. Saint Patrick's Day episode. I just think it's hilarious how like these two people are going to basically be traveling around the world representing Ireland on this, you know, as part of the Security Council and have such energy and joy and amazing things to say. And they're so they were both so happy to be with us. And I, I actually I really enjoyed that, um, especially some of the things that Tara said. Her, she's from Belfast, she's from Northern Ireland, and she has like a, a set way, like a set lingo that we don't have in London. And one of, the, one of the things she said off the cuff was the dogs in the street could have told you that Brexit was a bad idea. And like, she just said it off the cuff, but it's actually quite a funny thing to think about. Like, why would there be a dog on the street and why would you ask them? They're a bit like, I don't know. It's just like one of those, like a very localism things that local people in that area say, but it was just, I was editing that episode and that's just one of the things that I just laughed at. I, I love the fact that our podcast can kind of showcase the, the very best of what, Labour Party and the Labour Party has to offer in terms of activists I just think all of our guests um, no matter what the topic's been about no matter what their life experiences have been have all had something really interesting to contribute to our conversations and that's absolutely wonderful to to have and I hope that going into the next series we have equally as brilliant guests on and that we can still carry on talking about these important issues that I don't think 
any other podcast is doing like we're doing. <laughs> we are very much young activists speaking to other young activists on the left. And I think that's what makes us so different from other content that's going on uh, nationally or even locally. I think that just what makes us so, so different is like how consistently we upload and we speak to people who are actually doing things in the movement and doing things in the party. And what I'll love to do in five or six years time is look back and listen back to these episodes. And we can say, oh, do you remember that time when we spoke to that person? Oh, well, now they're doing this incredible thing or this person's just launched this. And for me, that'll be, I'll be really happy with that. I think what you say is an incredibly rewarding experience, you know, for giving young people in particular a platform to come and talk about their vision for the future and what the, some of the stuff they're doing in the party. If there is any young listeners out there who do have anything they want to talk about, reach out to us, we'd be happy to give you a platform. And, and like we've, we've mentioned a couple of guests, but I've, I've actually just been been looking back at some of the episodes we've done and you go, I actually forgot we done that one. And, and then you think, <laughs> oh, that was a really great episode. Honestly, every one of our guests have been incredible this season. And again, thank you all for, for coming on. There has also been some funny moments, uh, <laughs> maybe not aired funny moments, but let's just say, well, we may have a magical editing team. Well, it's all three of us, but... Are we are magical. <laughs> yes. There are a lot of things that don't go into the podcast, which are picked up on the microphone. We had me screaming one day. I think there was also, was I singing in one of them or what happened? We, it's we mainly just up. you, Ross, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> you are yeah. providing us with is loads it, of blooper content. Or is it Ross from Lethlinders Bloopers? I think it's Ross. <laughs> it, it makes me feel better if we say we say Lethlinders, but there was Collective. there was one day we might share these. Um see yeah. I remember because I was just saying this, and your mum like scared you, like as obviously as a joke, and you just literally screamed. Obviously, you just well done to Ross's mum. Shout out to uh to Big Linda. Arthur. Um, so absolutely nailing that. So if you actually, if you do ever see Ross around in person, if you happen to bump into him, he actually really enjoys being scared. It's like a really fun thing that people enjoy <laughs> yeah. doing with him. So if you ever just feel like you want to, you know, shout boo to him, he'll actually, he actually really enjoys that. And he's actually said that to me and Brandon several times. And that's lots... definitely, that's <laughs> definitely the truth that that's definitely true. There are many banners to hide behind at conference as well. So it's, it's a perfect opportunity to do it. <laughs> One thing I have to say, though, is despite the fact that I actually haven't met Brandon and I haven't met Ross, we've had such fun together, like recording this episode, edit editing these episodes and a highlight of mine. And this is obviously everything is political. So this will also be as well. Um, we have different Internet speeds because of where we are <laughs> in the country. And sometimes some are faster than others. So when we you might hear our introductions where we introduce ourselves. And we explain what the podcast will be about. And sometimes, and it doesn't happen as much anymore, but at the very beginning, I know where this is going. Ross's internet was a little bit slow at times. Now, this isn't this isn't Ross's fault. It just it has not your fault on this one. This is, this is what would happen is if we had a Labour government now, everyone would have super high, you know, Wi-Fi speeds, and we wouldn't have this problem. But ergo, we are here. Um, and Brandon and I would introduce ourselves, and we would sit and wait for Ross, who 30 to 40 seconds later would then introduce himself because of, of the slow band speed, um, which obviously is, of course, Nicola Sturgeon's fault. Yes, of yes. course. So hashtag thanks, Nicola. 
it's not that it's it's not that I've forgotten to take myself off mute or anything like that. It's it's obviously you know the yeah, SMP's fault. Like, and it's like, and it's like a nice thirty to forty second chunk of us waiting, and Brandon and I try not to laugh. And so you would think you would think you know we've all done a couple of episodes. We're all you know relatively good at how this rolls, and you would think that we would have burst into tears every single time, um, but unfortunately we do. So for every for every one introduction you hear three or four are recorded and the best one <laughs> and the best one is picked we also have a dance move as well we've, we've come up with a little dance that we do when when each other's stalking you, oh, you no. will one get one day get to see that but let's I just say ready for it I don't yeah. <laughs> it looks a little like cpr but you know <laughs> I, I actually regret introducing this topic because it's just been a couple of minutes of everybody taking the piss out of me <laughs> <laughs> No, 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 there's definitely like there's definitely it's only good other things. Wasn't there one with Brandon where his other half was in the bath and like couldn't and had to like he had to go on mute several times because he was really worried about like background background noise. Background and, noise, very important. Um, and there's definitely been like ones where I've had like some really strange background noise because yeah. I I often sit in the kitchen doing it. And- Who was it we were interviewing? And Brandon's alarm went off. Or, oh, or gosh, a car alarm. Yeah. The car alarm on the street was going off for a solid hour. So I was meant to be in the, the episode with, oh, what, who was it? Was it Jack McConnell? Yeah, I was meant be. to be in the episode with Jack McConnell. And um, my car alarm, uh, not my car alarm, thank goodness, but somebody's car alarm outside uh, decided to wail for the, the whole 40 <laughs> minutes that we're recording, which is lovely. It's brilliant. Yeah, well, we might be doing a live stream shortly, so you'll, you'll, you'll get to see the, the in-depth working of, of how we managed to make an absolute arse of the podcast. <laughs> but, you know, am I allowed to swear? Is this PG? No, 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 you are. You are allowed to swear, but just not excessively. So we're not rated R. <laughs> we, are, we are still uh, PG. Um, you're allowed a little bit of swearing, but I think... Billy Brack was kind of teetering on the line of we might have had to take out a few swear words because um, I was record, I was um, editing it back and I thought, is this too much? I'm not sure. So um, yeah, it, it worked out okay in the end. So this is the part of our show where we play policy hot or not. And the premise of it is pretty simple. If we like a policy, it's hot. If we don't, it's not. And um, we each pitch one idea to the other two. And we see whether the Left Wingers podcast would, if we're in government, God forbid, (laughs) whether whether we would actually pass these policies or not. Okay, who wants to go first? I'll go first. So based on the European Super League this week, I, of course, have to revert back to the 2019 Labour manifesto, which at the time was seen as completely ridiculous and out of line. And suddenly this time, this time this year, it's actually quite sane and normal. Um, So my one is uh, stop stop billionaires that aren't based in the UK owning football clubs and put at least 50%, so 50 to 51%, of all Premier League teams back into ownership of public of the public or of the fans. And what the fans can do is they can put in, you know, 10, 15, 20, up to however much they want to have a portion of that football club. Um, so an example of that is my local team called Clapton FC. And Clapton FC is a fan-owned, a fan-owned club. And I, for example, have a little membership card and I pay, I think it's 
I think it's 15 pounds a year and that's kind of my contribution and off the back of that um, they have a great women's team a great men's team and then they also have a hardship fund for people in the local community who are struggling they help out with the food bank and they have really great support in the local area and I feel happier supporting that team than I would do Liverpool lot Arsenal or Manchester United who I think are just so are so unfortunately some of them are just so far removed from their communities I think it is a great idea the football team that I support Celtic was founded to effectively feed people in the, the poorer parts of Glasgow club still does do some charity work but it, it's not got the community feel that you know a public Celtic should have it, it is very much run as a business I appreciate it needs to make profits it needs to be sustainable but football is you know the national game so many people love it it's an obsession it's people's lives uh, and it should be in their hands and the fans hands yeah, I completely agree. To use the, the terminology of uh, this segment, I think that policy is extremely hot. Uh, <laughs> I say it in such an awkward way. <laughs> like, oh yes, it's quite hot, this policy. No, uh, it is actually a really good policy because a lot of fans of football teams anyway feel like they've already got a stake in the game, 100% for sure. So why not give them a financial stake in their teams? And hopefully that would encourage the large football teams to actually reinvest back in grassroots football, which isn't actually being done enough. You know, there's a lot more that they could do to actually invest in their, their local communities because they are earning big bucks. And I think the people who, the, the fans of those clubs should benefit from the money that they're making. And, and it's been tried and tested too. Like look at Germany, for example, they have fan ownership of clubs. It works as well. One of the best leagues in the world their national team because they have fan-owned clubs and there's investment in the grassroots. The national team is extremely successful. So yeah. just for just for people who maybe a couple of years ago, like I'm I'm definitely not a massive football fan. I'm interested in it and I do play football, but I'm not um I'm definitely not a mega fan. Uh but what I would say is that if you don't really understand football or if you're not into that, I would suggest if you have time to go and watch all or nothing on Amazon about like the teams of Manchester City and I think they've done three or four other teams as well um, and I know YouTube and Netflix have similar documentaries and um, where they actually just put you go into the dressing room and you go into the change room and you actually you see what's going on inside the business and what goes on inside the teams and inside the big conversations with the big players and I think if you sit and watch that you actually get a view of the fans and the team and how that whole industry kind of operates and works and I felt like I understood it a lot more when I had watched it and I felt like I knew the football industry a lot better. I also think three of us are very political, but there are people out there who kind of share that love that we have for politics. They have against one team and their whole week has decided on how well that team does on a Saturday. And like their whole, you know, all their presents are kit from that, that team and they go every single week and their dad went and their dad's dads went and they've been there, you know, for hundreds of years. And that's, it's so nice to see that in the UK we have that kind of culture and that football can bring people together if done properly. Yeah, I think that's um, that's a hot from all of us, uh, which is great. It's a great start. It's hot, hot, hot. <laughs> so that's so that's my hot or not idea. Um, Brandon, I know that you didn't come up with one before the episode, so I'm going to put you on the spot and, and not let you wait till last. Oh, God. Um, I actually see, I've got lots of really serious very very serious policy points on this list 
and one that isn't quite as serious but is very very important is the desperate need to electrify the railways in the north now what the thing that actually brought me into politics initially was improving the transport network as sad as that sounds that is the thing that you know got me out of bed in the morning and made me go to several really extremely boring meetings uh, but i just think it's so important because a lot of people in the north are held back not only by the lack of educational opportunities in comparison to the rest of the country but also the transport network means that you can't travel great distance over the north for employment and i'm sure this is exactly the same in other parts of the country so i'm not just saying the north on its own but there is desperate need for investment in our rail services in this country now i used to be against hs2 and i've, I've kind of come around to that i think too too much money's already in it to uh, to stop the project now but we definitely need to invest in more localized rail services because how are we supposed to build a green economy if people have to depend on cars to travel around that's my two cents what do you think in true lisa and andy form Brandon has come out with the need for local, for good local transport. I just want a functioning railway network, please. It's <laughs> <laughs> a take on a classic, Lisa and Andy, I just want a functioning bus network. Um, you can hear the full list of tracks on Lisa and Andy's, uh, Lisa and Brandon's Spotify playlist. Way tracks, that was a good pun that you didn't even intend to make. <laughs> I did, I did. Did you? Oh, I'm impressed. You've got to listen for the jokes, you've got to listen for the jokes, Brandon. Um, I think that's a really good policy. I'd also add it's not just people in the north that have that, it's people in Wales and people in the south that have that as well. I find this to be really interesting, like as a Londoner, whenever I leave London, I'm always woken up as to like how much people depend on cars because they just can't guarantee that there's going to be a bus or a, or a train or a tram or anything like that. And I think this is one of those things, you know, very much going back to the 2019 general election, Boris Johnson promised a huge amount of investment in a lot of, you know, a lot of the red wall seats and nothing's happened yet because obviously we've, we've dealt with the, the, the COVID crisis. But in the future, I would expect there to be a lot of changes in those areas because a functioning bus network, a functioning rail network is one of those things that brings so much benefits to the local community relative to the cost. So I'd be really interested to see what happens with that? Like, is he going to fulfill that promise? Are there, is there going to be a functioning bus network in the red wall seats and a functioning train network? Like we're going to find out, stay tuned for the next general election, but I'd be interested to see. And it's something that you can really clearly mark. Like you really can't hedge it. Like either the buses work or they don't in an area and the local citizens of the area will tell you because they definitely know. To be honest, I think we should just go back to coal powered trains. <laughs> controversial opinion no oh, I'm, I'm joking i'm joking um it is something that needs to happen we are so far behind when it comes to other european countries like france germany geographically they're bigger than us yet you can get from one side to the other in just about as much time as you can get from one side of the uk to the other um and cheaper you can do it cheaper and cheaper well. a lot cheaper yeah it needs to happen i live in glasgow unless you live in the city center you're screwed like you have to get two and three buses and it's just it's not workable um if we're serious about our climate targets it needs to happen it's not a hot or not policy it's a must i just don't think it's appropriate for us to have paces trains in in the 2020s like this is meant to be the future and um we're not we're not running on the future uh, with our our current rail network it's um it should be also, one of the so main priorities. Like no one speaks about how expensive yeah. trains are. Like I think there was a story a couple of years ago of somebody, somebody was like traveling across the country for some reason, like some young, some young teenager. 
and he actually found out it would be cheaper to fly to Spain to get to that place. So he so instead of going from one end of the country to another, he flew to Barcelona, had a day out in Barcelona, and then flew back and got and basically got there faster and had half a day out in Barcelona paid for, and it came to less Crazy. than the cost of the train from one end of the country to another. And I think if you're in a situation where you have a bad, you have like bad trains that are expensive, you're not doing any, anyone any favours. I'm going to introduce a really controversial policy here. A Scottish Labour government. Is it hot or is it not? Oh, oh, is that a policy? Well, it's, it's a take. It's a take. <laughs> well, I, I should hope we're all united in the the cause of a Scottish Labour government. Uh, I think, you know, the SNP haven't showed that they can run Scotland as a country effectively or as effectively as they, they could, given the financing that they have and the time that they've had in government. So really, I think an, another party should be given a chance to run Scotland. And why shouldn't that be the Labour Party? We have the same interests across the rest of the country as we do in Scotland. Yeah, I mean, 14 years now. I was four years older than the SNP came to power and not much has changed. If our new listeners perhaps recognise Ross's voice or maybe recognise what Ross is saying, maybe that's because you've seen him on a Scottish Labour advert this week. And uh, you'd be right to say that because Ross actually was on an advert. And if you want to hear him speaking about policies, then what you can do is you can have a look at the recent Scottish Labour videos where Ross speaks to the heart and really gets to the point about how the SNP's education record has just been so poor for so long. Um, so Ross really not alone is being you know, the guy that's done all the bloopers, but he's actually the superstar of this episode. So we look forward to seeing his kind of rise to fame as he travels throughout Scottish Labour advertising into mm-hmm. the pop echelons of... Yeah, it is my line and it's, it's, you know, I was in primary one. I was four. I was in primary one. I was four when you promised to do this. And now I work and you've not <laughs> achieved it. It's an effective line. It I is mean, effective. I have to say, I like this sounds sarcastic because most of the things that I say sound sarcastic. But like it genuinely <laughs> is like inspiring to hear somebody talk about the need for change in their community. Like genuine genuinely. And you know, we should all have better educational opportunities than the generation before us. And I don't think there's been that great of a change since the last one, not just in Scotland, but across the whole of the UK. Unfortunately, that's all we've got time for in this episode. And that's the end of season two. We'll be back the week after the election with a live stream reaction to the election. And then we'll be off for a couple of weeks until the 2nd of June. We'll be back with another Winging Wednesday. If you want to keep in touch with us in the meantime, you can follow our Instagram, Facebook or Twitter. Their links are in this episode's description. Or if you're feeling old-fashioned, you can email us, info at leftwingers.co.uk. Keep whinging and we'll see you soon.